Good morning, everybody. Uh, most of y'all might not know this, uh, but several years ago, I had a, a fairly popular anonymous Twitter account. Uh, it was an account set up to tell church-based humor. I called it Back Row Baptist. In fact, there was a, a copy of a collection of all my best uh, tweet jokes in our church library, which you might not know had any connection to me. And I'm not going to lie, it was stupid. Uh, but it was kind of fun, you know, the fun kind of stupid, you know what I mean? And in the span of just a few months, I had reached something like 24,000 followers by accident. And the only connection that these people had to me was reading my dumb jokes every day. And the longer that I ran it, the more I felt a responsibility to keep being funny. And I enjoyed it for a long time. And then God started to do something interesting. He used my stupid little jokes to actually start a dialogue with person after person after person. Some people were hurt by the church. Some were unbelievers who grew up in a Christian home. Some were believers like me seeking to find the funny in our faith. This little comedy Twitter account grew into a blog, a podcast, a morning show on a radio station. And in 2020, was taken in under the umbrella of a larger ministry called Love Thy Nerd. The Back Row Morning Show is something that I still do with uh, my friend Megan Oaks every week. Uh, and we have reached well over 500 episodes. In fact, we recorded 550 and 551 uh, just yesterday. On this show, we do talk about serious faith-based stuff, but we also tell stupid stories, react to funny news, taste test disgusting food like taco-flavored crickets and hot dog-flavored candy corn. There's videos out there if you want to see them. I wouldn't recommend it. And all of it means absolutely nothing in the long run. If tomorrow we decided to put it into it, kill whatever is left from back row, gone and dead, that would be fine. Everything that we've done since 2011 would dry up and pass away. The things that would remain were the thousands of people whom over the years have had a deeper, more profound experience born out of something stupid that we shared in common. Many people would look at the stuff I've done in ministry over the last 12 years and call it childish. Heck, Love Thy Nerd is a ministry based around video games, tabletop games, and comic books. We go to comic and game conventions and create all kinds of written audio and video content largely focused on people's nerdy love of adventure and sci-fi and superheroes. But all of that frivolous stuff all of those childish things constantly open the door for real, important conversations on life and faith. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians, verse 13, 11. It says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And unfortunately, we have used that verse out of context for a long time. Many of us think that this is saying, hey, 
Stop playing video games. Stop wasting time with nonsense. Get up. Get to work. You aren't honoring God unless you are doing something tedious and frustrating all the time. Because that's what adulthood is. But in reality, this verse is bringing an entirely different message. In fact, what Paul is actually saying is leave behind your immature, naive, and perhaps irrational way of thinking. Stop acting like you know everything or that you can see the whole picture. Focus more on growing yourself than finding faults in others. This month, I've been bringing you a series called Straight Out of Context, where I have been showing you verses commonly used in Christian culture but used incorrectly, at least in part. And how when put back in its proper context, it can mean something so much bigger. And we'll touch a little bit more on verse 11 in a bit, but that's not actually the verse I'm here to discuss. Instead, I want to take you back to your wedding day, those of you who are married or have been. I'm sure it was a bit of a blur for friends and family, makeup and decorations, photos, and that ever so slight fear in the back of your mind that your future spouse might just run away before the ceremony after meeting all of your crazy relatives. But I'd bet money that, especially if you were married in a church, at some point between the rehearsal dinner and the reception, somebody quoted 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's lovely. It's a fantastic chunk of verses, and it really does lay the groundwork for a good start in a marriage. But, using it that way is completely out of context. So let's get to work and start with a bit of history, and by a bit, this time I mean a lot. So buckle up. Without the context, this passage is a beautiful narrative on love, and it is eloquent enough on its own. But when you put it in the proper context, when you have an even more beautiful passage, it's going to show you the true value of love. The first thing we have to do is understand this passage is to look back at 1 Corinthians 12. This chapter deals with the concept of spiritual gifts, especially the gift of speaking in tongues. And in that chapter, Paul also writes about the church being a body that all of us need each other. It's a celebration of our individuality because God made us all different so that we can all accomplish different tasks that God has for us. Where where we are different... We need to celebrate that God has made us this way so that we can accomplish many tasks for him instead of just a few. But you have to understand that there is a reason that Paul is writing this stuff to the church of Corinth. And the reason is because the opposite was happening in that church. People aren't taking their spiritual gifts and thanking God for them here and using them for his glory. People also weren't looking at others who were different from them And accepting those differences with all the strengths and weaknesses that come from our uniqueness, the exact opposite was happening. You had people in the church who were putting themselves ahead of others because of the spiritual gifts that they had. The most obvious, again, uh, the most obvious one being talked about here was tongues. But there were others. So Paul begins to remind them that we all have spiritual gifts. If you're a follower of Christ, then there are areas that he is going to gift you to serve him with. 
Because the source is the same, so is the value of the gift. It's not something that we should compare to other people. If the source is the same, we should use them to put focus on him. That's what Paul tries to do in the second part of chapter 12. He reminds them of the purpose. You had people saying, well, my gift is superior to yours, therefore you should be like me. And if that sounds familiar, that's because it's still happening in every church today. You have those people who don't mind telling you that the church would be better if simply everyone acted and behaved like they did. But that's not how Paul saw it, and that's not how God sees it. And I can prove that, because if God wanted us all to behave and act the same, he would have made us all the same. And he didn't. He made us unique. And Paul was saying that we should celebrate that uniqueness. So then we come to the heart, literally and figuratively, of the argument that he makes in chapter 13. So the last line of chapter 12 reads, and now I will show you the most excellent way. So what is that way? We find it in chapter 13, first three verses. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but not love, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but if I have all, uh, but if I have all faith as to remove my goodness sorry so as to remove mountains but have not love i am nothing if i give away all i have and if i deliver up my body to be burned but have not love i gain nothing so understand what the argument is it's that you can have every single spiritual gift but if you don't have love it's all worthless To put it in the context of the entire argument, those people who were worried about how superior they were because of their spiritual gifts, those people who just knew that life would be easier if everyone were like them, in the eyes of Paul, their real problem wasn't simply a lack of focus on God, it was a lack of love. And his message to them is that for a follower of Christ, love is the greatest thing that we can have. Then to show the superiority of love, Paul begins to define what love is. We're going to see that this explanation not only is beautiful, but largely tailored to their issues. Paul begins, love is patient, love is kind. He begins with a passive and active description of love. Patience is passive. It's what automatically happens when love is present. When we love someone, we automatically give them the benefit of the doubt. We give allowances for their faults and their weaknesses. What one person might find annoying about somebody someone with love would find endearing. That's the difference. When we love someone, it changes how we act towards them. The greater truth here is that if we live a life of love, this won't be true just to a few select individuals, but it will mark our lives and the way that we treat everybody around us. And then there's a matter of kindness. Now, this is an active verb. Kindness is defined as a helpful act. In other words, if we live a life of love, it will show in the helpful ways that we do for other people. So Paul starts by using two words to describe what love is. Then Paul begins to describe what love is not. The first five things Paul mentions love is not are connected to things that he has already told them that they need to stop earlier in 1 Corinthians. He begins by saying that love does not envy. So this is a flashback to an earlier verse, 1 Corinthians 3, 3, uh, the second part of it here. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not the flesh and behaving only in a human way? 
Paul's statement is that you're still worldly, but what does that mean? That they're not following Christ. Jealousy is about desiring something for yourself, but love is about putting others before yourself. Then Paul says it does not boast. Again, this is ground that he started laying before in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? As in, everything that you have, God gave to you. So why are you acting like this is something you did for yourself? In the original argument, Paul is saying to them that they don't have anything to boast about because everything comes from God. But now he carries it a step further and says, besides, if you love someone, you don't need to boast around them. Boasting is done to establish your position. But where there is love, there is no need to establish your position, your rank. Because you are already secure with those that love you and who, or those that you love and who love you back. That is the greatest thing about love. It's not earned, so you don't lose it. Love isn't about couples. It's about people of God caring for one another. Outside of God, there can be love, but it's not a full, true love because God is love. He is the purest example of love, and only by following him and seeking to allow him to make us into his image can we truly love others. The next thing Paul tells us love is not is that it is not proud or arrogant other translations say it's not puffed up you understand that pride is an emotion and when it's for a healthy reason it can be a healthy emotion emotion to the church of philippi paul wrote so that through my being with you again your joy in christ jesus will overflow on account of me there are other translations that say you're boasting in christ jesus or what you can be proud of may increase. So when Paul wrote to the Philippians, he said, boast in the Lord and be proud of what God has done. But when it comes to Corinthians, in chapter 4, he's addressing them on the subject of sin and says, yet you're proud. The implication is that in the face of their sin, they're proud. In fact, so proud that they don't think that they need to address their sin. And Paul is saying that love isn't like that. It may be proud of what God does, It may be proud of righteousness, but it's not going to be so proud that it can't take a look at itself. Next, love is not rude, but a better translation is, does not act shamefully or disgracefully. In other words, when you love someone, you won't do things to shame them or put them down. But in addition, when you live a life of love, you won't treat other people that way. In this letter, Paul has already discussed how some ladies were dressing for worship because it was being done to draw attention to them. He also had discussed how some people were acting when they were served communion because those that were affluent had basically taken over serving communion and were using the time, the time when everyone is supposed to be remembering Christ's sacrifice for us, and they were using that time to make those who had little feel bad or inferior. And this behavior was not only unacceptable, it was rude. And it was happening in the church. And Paul called them out on it. And now here, as he's coming to the end of the letter, he says, you know why that behavior happens? It's because you don't have love. You know what's interesting? Each of these terms shows not just a lack of love, but a lack of security. Some people say that love is a risk, but if you live without love, there's definitely a cost to you and the people around you. So love is a risk, 
not having love is already failing, already losing. Which brings us to the next term that Paul says love is not. It is not self-seeking. Now this is the same term that he gave them in 1 Corinthians 10.24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So once again, he is listing something that love is not. But he's already called them on doing it. The secret of this passage is that there was nothing wrong with this church that couldn't be fixed if people would simply live with love. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with this world that can't be fixed if we would live with love. The issue is that the only way that people can ever really learn to love and how to live with love is from God, the source of love. Paul tells us two things that love is, five things that it is not, that he has already wrote about them doing. And now he lists two more verbs that are universally excluded as well. In other words, Paul is saying that even though you guys haven't blatantly done these yet, don't even think about it because they're a bad idea too. The first is that love is not easily angered. This is similar to love is patient, but it's a bit more pointed. It means that a person who lives with love is not easily provoked to anger. You've heard the term, you're pushing my buttons. When love is present, a lot of buttons have to be pushed before someone who loves gets angry. The next term is that it keeps no record of wrongs. In other words, love doesn't keep score of negative things. When someone does something harmful to us, we are supposed to find a way to let it go. When Jesus told us to forgive our brother not seven times, but 70 times, seven times, he's saying always forgive. Because there's no way you can keep track of 490 things that someone has done to you wrong. Right? If you kept a record of 490 times someone has hurt you, and then on 491 said, I don't have to forgive you anymore. As you can plainly see, you have surpassed the 490 allotment, and you are no longer covered by biblical policy. (laughs) The fact that you kept that record of all proves that you have never forgiven them from one of those uh, 490 things, right? Because you're holding on to them. You're keeping a record. All you're proving is that you never actually forgave. So here Paul says, it's a loving thing to do, but it's also for our good. I'll say it again. When you relive what someone has done that hurt you in the past, you're inviting that pain right back into your life as if it just happened. For the sake of love, so that you can live a life of love, let it go. The next clause is a balanced statement. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. I say this is balanced because they are related. Because one is true, because if one is true, then the other one is true. In fact, I think you could understand the statement really if you replace the but with because. Love does not delight in evil because it rejoices in the truth. And if you understand this clause, you come a long way towards understanding part of the nature of God. So many people can't understand the gospel and can't understand Christianity because they don't get the meaning of this clause. They picture God as the judge up in the sky trying to determine if we're good enough. 
We're not good enough, and that's okay. God already knew that we wouldn't be. And he sacrificed himself as payment for our shortcomings. He did that because he loves us. God doesn't delight in the evil that we do, but rejoices in the truth and the things that we do that are with his character. He does that for us because he loves us, and that's what love does. After giving us that insight into the character of God, Paul then tells us four things that love always does. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. These are the things that love always does. These are the things that we should do for each other and the way that we should treat each other. And best of all, these are the things that God does for us. These are the do's and don'ts of love. The things that love is, the things that love is not. And when we have this transitional paragraph that comes after this that compares love to the spiritual gifts, and in Paul's mind, love is greater. That's the opening statement in verse 8, love never fails. It doesn't mean that there won't be problems or difficulties. It does mean that those things won't destroy love. No matter what happens, love will remain. And then here he gets really personal. Now remember, he's just gotten done talking to them about spiritual gifts. It's something that they are proud of. And then he hits them with, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. In other words, you guys have been so proud of your spiritual gifts, but they are temporary. At some point, they will fade away. It may be with time, it may be with the fading of life, but everything that we get here on this earth is just for a season. Except love. Love comes from God and it will remain. Love should be the focus. Because of this, love is the deepest expression of our spiritual relationship with Christ because it is what endures. The motivation for Jesus' entire mission here on earth was love. Everything he did was motivated and marked by love. Think of the power he had at his disposal to deal with issues and people here on this earth. And even those who constantly harassed him, he had the patience to deal with them rather than any of the other options he could have used. Even on the cross, when he asked God to forgive them, He was doing it out of love. Then Paul closes with this well-known verse. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. But now what we've heard, now that we've heard the context, we can fully appreciate the message of these words. Faith is important. We need faith. Faith brings us our salvation, right? That's, that's the whole starting point. Hope is something that we desperately need, especially in a time where things get hopeless around us, in our country, in our world, in our communities. Hopelessness can overtake us. Hope is something we desperately need to cling to. But love is laid out clearly and explicitly as more important, the most important of all things. The Corinthians wanted to know 
what was the greatest and most important, and Paul has been answering. His first answer was for us as Christians to understand that our mission is to work together. And now for the conclusion, he tells them that love is the greatest good, but only after setting up the reason why. The love fulfills the rest. Because of love, faith will be fulfilled. In verse 12 it says, Now we see a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Today we have faith in God. We hope in the promises that He has given us, including the ultimate one that one day we will go to be with Him. But because of love, one day that promise will be fulfilled. We will no longer believe in what one day will be because we will see what is then. Because of love, hope will become knowledge. The second half of verse 12 says, Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So today we have an idea of what He is like because of what His Word tells us and the way that the Spirit moves in our lives. But one day, because of love, we will go to live with Him and all will be revealed. We won't hope that God is all He says He is because we will truly know Him then. When that day comes, the love of God, which fulfills all, will be all that remains. Isn't that good to know that at the end of life, at the end of time, at the end of everything, love will remain. The love that God has for us and the love that we have for each other. Peanuts has always been one of my favorite comic strips. And uh, Linus is my favorite character, bar none. His, uh, in, one, in one of these daily comics, Linus says, when I grow up, I'm going to be a doctor. And his older sister, Lucy, says, you can't be a doctor. You have no love for mankind. And Linus replies, I love mankind. It's people I don't like. Today's message was a bit different from my other two because it was all about the context and delved into a much larger scripture. But I still have three points I want to cover really, really quick. First, yes, 1 Corinthians 13 can help us with our personal relationships, especially marriage. It's a reminder that we are on the same team, that we have the same goals, that we should never treat each other uh, as opponents, that we should treat each other humbly and empathetically instead of like we're, you know, on a battlefield. Second, 1 Corinthians 13 can train us how we should be acting in all circumstances with all people. Not just those we trust or are close to, but everyone. Because it doesn't matter what we do. If we aren't doing it in love, it's a load of garbage. And thirdly, 1 Corinthians 13 can show us how to truly reach the lost. At the beginning I told you about Love Thy Nerd, a ministry that I'm a part of. Let me tell you about a man I met through LTN. When he was younger, he had a friend introduce him to a tabletop role-playing game called Dungeons & Dragons. The church at large once had a major problem with Dungeons & Dragons, only he didn't really know why. People said that there were goblins and wizards and dragons and assumed that was close enough to the devil that, well, we probably just shouldn't have anything to do with it. In reality, it's closer to people making up their own Lord of the Rings story, really. It's creative and artistic, it's acting and world-building, it's fellowship, it's fun, it's pretty much harmless. 
But this man I met told me that when his parents found out that he had been playing D&D, they took him to their pastor. And the pastor said that he was being persuaded by the devil to play such an evil game and that if he really liked playing it, it meant he was bound for hell because he had been turned to the evil one. And so, as a kid, hearing this, he stopped playing. He pretended like he hated the game. He even turned his back on his friend that introduced him to it. A few years later, when he left for college, he saw a flyer for a local game night where they were having a standing weekly D&D game. He decided to give it another try. And what he found in that room was a group of people who loved him, loved playing a game with him, and made him feel like family. The church he attended never made him feel that way. He always felt like he was on the verge of somebody's wrath, either God's or the pastor's or his parents'. And it was then that he stopped going to church and stopped associating with believers almost entirely. But then, a couple decades later, he found Love Thy Nerd, a group of Christians who loved the same games he loved. And they invited him to play an online version of D&D with Christian nerds from all across North America. They didn't preach at him. They didn't judge him. They didn't expect anything in return from him. All they did was love him. They loved him in the way Paul describe love. And that began to till the soil in this man's heart. It softened the earth so that seeds could be planted again. It brought this man back to church. It opened him up to a deeper conversations. It changed his perspective on Christianity and on our loving God. He no longer feared the wrath. He clung to the love. I've heard hundreds of stories similar to this over the years. Christian unlove turned people away from the church, sometimes from God entirely. But when they stumbled upon true Christian love again, it brought them back. One instance. Just like last week, one hug. One interaction with somebody who's truly exuding the pure love of God to them can be enough to erase decades of hurt. Decades of pain, decades of fear. That's how powerful God's love is. For all of us, love should be our biggest ministry. Please don't convince yourself that love is soft, that love is weak, that it is not something that we should be focusing on, that it is not enough to bring people to Christ. Love is the most powerful force God has unleashed on this planet. And without it, every word we could ever say is just noise. Every act that we could ever do gains nothing. Everything without love is nothing.